It has now been 10 years since the World Health Organization adopted the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, or FCTC. The FCTC's aim is to prevent and control the use of tobacco products. 179 countries around the world, as well as the European Union, have signed the agreement and made great progress towards reductions in smoking. I'm Dr. Muniza Walji, Editorial Fellow for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Prabhat Jha, founding and current director of the Center for Global Health Research in Toronto. He's a leading expert in global tobacco control. In the commentary he co-authored, Dr. Jha says that although the FCTC has improved global health in the past 10 years, we now need to look at what needs to be done in the coming decade to meaningfully reduce global consumption of tobacco products. Hello, Dr. Jha. Good morning. So what does the latest evidence tell us about the effects of smoking and the benefits of quitting? Well, the latest evidence is surprisingly recent. Only in October of 2012, on a meeting that honored the late Sir Richard Dahl's 100th birth centenary, were five studies from around the world assembled to look at the 21st century hazards of smoking in men, and particularly in women. And women are important because they started smoking later than men, and to date we haven't had a good sense of what is the mature epidemic. We broadly know that if women smoke like men, they'll die like men, but we didn't have good evidence. So what happened at this meeting on October 28, 2012 at Radcliffe Infirmary in, in Oxford was a remarkable finding from prospective studies in the UK, in the United States, including two that we did, from Japanese atomic bomb survivors and from our studies in India that the mature hazards of the 21st century smoking involve now a threefold higher risk of death, meaning smokers typically will lose a full decade of life. That's, that's not losing a year or two of life, but a full decade of life unless they quit. Now, the other evidence that came out also meant really surprisingly and stunningly similarly is that Quitting is ridiculously effective. Those that quit by age 40 avoid more than 90% of the excess risk had they continued to smoke. There's still some residual risk, much of which arises from lung cancer, but if you quit by 40, your risk of subsequent heart attack or stroke or many diseases due to smoking falls to close to zero. There's a small persistent risk for lung cancer, but it's an order of magnitude lower than if you were continuing to smoke. So that's really the, the extraordinary use of the 21st century. Huge risks for now women and men, but quitting is effective, and quitting early is particularly effective. So you talk a lot about the benefits of quitting and how effective it is, and you mentioned in your commentary that smoking cessation is quite common in Canada. Is that mm. the case globally? It's not the case globally. In Canada, we've had about 35 years of effective tobacco control getting better in some ways over time. So now, among 50-year-olds in Canada, there are more ex-smokers than current smokers. But in most parts of the world, ex-smoking is still uncommon. People who do quit, quit because of disease, not to avoid disease. You know, it's that adage that cancer cured my smoking. 
And you see this in populations such as in India, where about 4% of the adult population described themselves as ex-smokers. And up until recently in China, it was very similar. So worldwide, most of the people who quit in developing countries, you know, there's about 1.3 billion smokers worldwide. Most of those are in low and middle income countries. Among those, the quitting numbers are really because of disease and not to avoid disease. Whereas in Canada, we've had many people quit before they get disease. So the global tobacco industry still generates good profit and uses this money for lobbying and marketing efforts. What are some of the strategies that they try to use to increase tobacco consumption globally in countries like you mentioned, India and China? Well, a simple rule of thumb is that every metric ton of tobacco produced creates about a million cigarettes. This actually creates about 1.2 million cigarettes. And that is enough to kill one person. So worldwide, there's about 5 trillion cigarettes produced, which eventually will cause about 5 million deaths. Well, it's actually now up to 6 trillion cigarettes. So every ton of tobacco, million cigarettes, one death. The other statistic is that every death from tobacco equates to about $10,000 of profit for the cigarette industry. Worldwide cigarette industry profits are about $50 billion. Divide that by $5 million, you get about $10,000 profit per death. So the industry's obvious strategy is to replace the people who die with new smokers, particularly kids. And what they do with this very large amount of money is really run interference with government strategies. And a basic rule of tobacco control is very simple. Listen to the industry and do the exact opposite. Everything the industry tells you that should be done, you should do the opposite. So, for example, in developing countries, they know that governments want tax revenue from cigarettes. So they go in and they design these clever levels of different types of taxes so that it's easy for a smoker to switch down to another brand, a cheaper brand, in response to a tax hike. So in China, the world's largest smoking market, about 40% of all the cigarettes smoked in the world are in China, the industry has organized a tenfold difference between the cheapest and most expensive cigarettes in Canada, as you know, we don't have more than twofold between the most expensive and the least expensive. But that wide variation engineered by the industry price manipulation and tax advice manipulation means that if the Chinese government does raise prices, then what it'll mean is a smoker will switch down to the next cheapest brand, effectively negating the impact of the tax hike. So the industry uses its money for really powerful lobbying. And this was illustrated beautifully by the comedian John Oliver in his show, which I would certainly encourage listeners to look at. He very much, in a hysterical and factual way, points out how the industry uses lawsuits, litigation, hassles small countries, and tries to intimidate them into maintaining a market for its deadly products. So I know you mentioned how difficult it is for the everyday smoker um, Mm -hmm. to quit. The WHO has recommended a 30% reduction in smoking prevalence by 2025, Mm -hmm. which they say would save around 200 million lives. Do you think that's feasible? And what do you think needs to be done to achieve this goal? 
I think it's an important goal, but the only way that that goal would be met is if the world tripled its excise taxes on tobacco. In other words, it had prices comparable to what we've pay now in Canada. And let me walk through that in a bit of detail. Well, if you look at the big variation in cigarette prices across the world, it's not due to the cost of making cigarettes. That's cheap around the world. It costs pennies to make a cigarette. The big difference is in the amount of tax that's on the cigarette. In Canada and in France, other places, we've used higher taxes to discourage consumption. But developing countries don't do that as uh, nearly as much. Therefore, their prices are lower. So the most effective way to lower consumption would be if there was a tripling of the excise tax and you applied that on particularly the lower-end cigarettes. So what that would do is the cheapest cigarettes in China and Indonesia and other settings will become much more expensive. The upper-end cigarettes would also become more expensive, but then the variation between the most least cigarettes becomes narrow. Therefore, you have more people wanting to quit. If a tripling of excise tax were to occur, what that would do is roughly double the world price. Again, sounds like a big deal, but it's not. It's All of us will remember when cigarettes in Canada not too long ago cost about 5 or $6 a pack. Now they're double that, and the consumption has continued to decline. So that's the strategy that will really be effective for curbing consumption up to 30% or so. Other things are important. Things like the ban on advertising and promotion is, uh, is important. And we'll also recall that in North America, we had a man-made literally a man-made female smoking epidemic, in large part because of the Virginia Slims ad, kind of conflating cigarette smoking with women's liberty or women's equality. Well, thankfully, the Chinese and various other governments have banned that kind of advertising. And female smoking in China has actually not increased. In fact, it's actually decreased somewhat. So they do have an important role, but to make a big dent and try to get 30% less smoking by 2030 will mean much higher taxes as the main strategy. So according to the WHO, their framework convention on tobacco control is the world's only legally binding public health tool. Do you think this model could be applied to other global or public health problems? I think the important thing is to actually implement the framework convention to to carry it through and then see if it's relevant for other conditions. The implementation of the Framework Convention has really been on paper. So 180 countries have signed on to it, but far fewer have actually implemented its core interventions. If you look at the WHO's own report, only 28 low- and middle-income countries have done all of the things that are supposed to be in the FCTC including higher taxes. So we're still a long way away from really effective implementation. And the hope is the next decade, there'll be a much bigger push on implementation. Could the Framework Convention be a template for taking on things like global obesity or 
other areas? Well, it really does vary. The science needs to really catch up to see whether the epidemiology and the responses to obesity would be like those for smoking. And in some cases, you can actually work with the food industry on doing things like food labels and some awareness uh, efforts and or bringing healthier products. That's not so for the tobacco industry. There's just nothing about the tobacco industry that is trustworthy. Their only goal is to undermine tax policies, control policies, get more kids to smoke, and make $10,000 profit off each death. So there's special circumstances for smoking which may not apply to other areas. So you got involved in becoming an expert in global tobacco, and I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about how that became something you were passionate about. Well, it's very simple. I became interested in global health right when I went over to Oxford to do my PhD. At that time, many of us in global health were working on small, uh, well, we're working on important problems. I was working on cervical cancer and protection against uh, human papillomavirus. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers of deaths from smoking was just staggering. I mean, if I drew a line of the total numbers of deaths, about 5 million a year, then the disease that I was studying, cervical cancer, on that same graph wouldn't be even the thickness of the line that I drew. So smoking is so important and it's such a huge cause of death that it seemed obvious that it needs attention. And then later when I joined the World Bank, which at that time was a very conservative organization, and I started talking about tobacco, I just got discouraged and other people said, no, no, you can't make the World Bank take tobacco seriously. But thankfully I ignored that advice and uh, I did a fair amount of analytic work that led to the two World Bank publications curbing the epidemic and tobacco control in developing countries, which were the evidence direction or evidence resource for the Framework Convention. The Framework Convention would not have happened without the World Bank support. And I was very happy that just persistence and ignoring the critics who said you can't take on tobacco meant that uh, those books were successful and have led to the Framework Convention. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Happy to join. We've been speaking with Dr. Prabhat Jha, Director of the Center for Global Health Research in Toronto. To read the commentary he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.